Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 50, The Weirdest Year of Your Life. to episode 50, yes, episode 50 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. I have a pretty big one for you guys today, a topic which, funny enough, actually wasn't my original choice for a 50th episode. I was originally planning on doing a huge special and commentary for one of my all-time favorite bad movies. But as I was putting that together, things were not working out the way I wanted to, and life was getting in the way, so I decided to table that idea for another 25 episodes or so, mainly because I am of the philosophy that if you have the opportunity to do something right instead of having to get it done, you do it right. I won't tell you what that topic is, although you might be able to guess, and I know Michael Bailey knows what I'm talking about because he's the one that gave me the idea, so credit where credit is due, but yes, an enigmatic movie topic that didn't pan out the way I wanted it to will now be the topic of episode 75. I'm sure you're all salivating. So what do I have planned for this episode? What could possibly top an in-depth look and commentary about a bad movie? Well, I am releasing this episode on June 25th, 2015. And there is a specific reason I have chosen this date. 20 years ago today, I graduated from high school. Now, before you start groaning about how this episode is going to be some sort of self-indulgent trip down memory lane, I have to remind you that I already did that when I did an episode about the novel that I wrote. And yes, this episode is a sequel, in a sense, to that episode, but this time around there's an actual connection to popular culture. As I began thinking about what I wanted to do for this episode, I thought about covering high school or some good teen movies, 
And then I realized how that's a really broad topic. So I began narrowing it down and focused solely on senior year, which was actually harder than I thought it was going to be because senior year isn't exactly the focus of a lot of high school movies. Many of the great movies take place before senior year or after graduation, or they simply don't have a specific point of reference. You know, in other words, the students are just simply high school students. They're not, we're not told what year of high school they're in. Granted, Savage Steve Holland kind of made one of the only movies you really need for a send-up of senior year of high school, and that is how I got into college. Between the various storylines about college admission and Marlon Brown's quest to get into the same school as Jessica Kahlo, his unrequited crush, I have not been able to find one single movie that really just sums it up so well. I'm not going to get too in-depth about it, though, because Michael Bailey and I gave How I Got Into College its due when we talked about Savage Steve Holland movies. And if you haven't ever listened to that episode from October of 2013, I believe, go and download it. It's, it's, a, it's a monster of an episode. It's about three hours. And in hindsight, I probably should have just split it up into two. But it was one of my favorite, all-time favorite podcast episodes to record. Anyway... Television shows might have worked for this, by the way, because, you know, you, you can get, uh, because television shows can have arcs over the course of a year, but I didn't have the time to watch a ton of television for prepping for this episode. And honestly, when I think about senior years portrayed by a teen television show, there's really only three words that come to mind, and those are... Donna Martin graduates. Donna Martin graduates. Donna Martin graduates. But I have found a few movies to talk about based on five different themes that really come to encapsulate, represent senior year. And what I've done is taken those movies, I've juxtaposed them with my own experience, which I've culled from memories and old journals and, and other things that I've actually kept for the last 20 years. So what I'm going to do now is, is take a break, and when I get back, I'll get started. So... Stay right here. Circus. <laughs> right next 
to the dark faced boy. True! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, oh. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go away, Peyton. And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. So you're looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Junior shoe. I say shut up! It's a man A man to truefreaks.com conclusion that high school movies have ruined me. I guess I should explain this. About six or eight months ago, the planning for my 20th reunion hit a high. 
as people were discussing what we sh- as a class should do and we're going back and forth and reconnecting and all the things you do over Facebook, I naturally started thinking about high school and what it was like. And then as I began planning this episode, I started thinking about my, what my senior year was like. So I dug through a box of old stuff from high school and college. I grabbed what I thought was worth looking at. And I'll get into the specifics of the, of the moments of sentimental happiness and cringing embarrassment that I experienced while I talk about all the various topics. But really, there was something ultimately, well, I don't want to say disappointing because that wouldn't be accurate, but there was something ultimately anticlimactic about my senior year of high school. I think that's because going into my senior year, I was misinformed because of all the times I had rented 80s teen movies during my ritual Friday night trips to Sable's Video Empire. Movies about senior year aren't always easy to find, nor are they particularly great. But there are some common themes, and while the list I have is not exactly definitive or, 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 or full or comprehensive, I think it's a pretty good look at the directions and misdirections in which a senior year can go, and they really do paint a good picture of what it can be like. So, welcome to the weirdest year of your life. You know what I realized a while back about American Pie? How wildly inappropriate the Shannon Elizabeth nude scene is. I guess when I first saw it in 1999, something in the back of my mind said that there's something so wrong with covertly webcasting a girl on the internet while she strips and masturbates. And I guess the fact that the scene ends in a comedic embarrassment for Jason Biggs' character, and the fact that 1999 can be considered a slightly more innocent time, could alleviate some of its sketchiness. But on the other hand, I think I'm right in saying that knowing how many teenage girls have been filmed without consent, had pictures of videos broadcast and shared without consent, or worse, raped and had the videos or pictures of their rape sent around, that scene is at least something that in the very least should make you feel uncomfortable. This also replies to Revenge of the Nerds, by the way, uh, which has two scenes that are worth re-examining in this context. And yet at the same time, American Pie's whole lose your virginity plot does serve to show how weird sex can be when you're in high school. And I don't mean that you do crazy weird fetish type of stuff, but you're so immature and you're so incredibly unsure of yourself at that age that it's often this weird, even wild thing you know you want to do, but you are unsure that you can go through with. You're locked, you're loaded, and ready to go, but you have... No idea what the hell you're doing. You know, I put in months of quality time with Vicky. Sherman meets a chick for one night and scores. This is just wrong. Oh, shit. How the hell am I supposed to become this Mr. Sensitive man? You know, we're all going to go to college as virgins. You realize this, right? I mean, they probably have special dorms for people like us. 
All right, I got an idea. But it's got to stay between us. It's really simple. We just got to make an agreement. Or, no, it's, it's more than an agreement. What, a bet? A pact. No money involved, more important than any bet. Here's the deal. We all get laid before we graduate. Dude, it's not like I haven't been trying to get laid. Think about when you work out, Oz. You gotta have someone there, right? Someone to spot you, someone to keep you motivated. Well, that's exactly what we can do for each other. I mean, we'll, we'll be there to keep each other on track. Separately, we are flawed and vulnerable, but together we are the masters of our sexual destiny. Their tiger style kung fu is strong, but our dragon style will defeat it. Guys. The Shaolin masters from east and west must unite. Fight and find out who is number one. Guys, come on, you're ruining my moment here. I mean, this is our very manhood at stake. We must make a stand here and now. No longer will our penises remain flaccid and unused. We will fight for every man out there who isn't getting laid and should be. This is our day. This is our time. And by God, we will not stand by and watch history condemn us into celibacy. Amen. I like that. Yes. We will make a stand. We will succeed. About time! We will get laid! Yes! And one of the things that always drew me to this movie is the way that the writers said it during the character's senior year. It gives the virginity plot more urgency. It serves to force each of the characters to admit the reality of their situations as well. Out of the four main characters, Jim and Finch are the two I always identified with the most. Alright, I never had sex with any baked goods and I never nailed my friend's hot mom. I don't think any of my friends had a hot mom. But when I watch the film, I see my own awkwardness in Jim and my intelligence and inability to take a shit in school in Finch. Yeah, I'm not kidding on that last one. Sable High School was built in 1959, and when I went there, there were only two bathrooms where it was safe to take a dump. One was the nurse's office in the bathroom, and the other one was the bathroom in the technology hallway. Those were brand new, and, and you had to get a key from the teacher in the classroom. Everything else, though, smoke-filled, graffiti-riddled. There were no doors in the toilet stalls. I don't even think there was any toilet paper. Okay, there might have been toilet paper. But... If you ever had to go take a dump in one of those bathrooms, it was a harrowing experience, at least for someone like me who kind of enjoyed his privacy, was a little self-conscious about that sort of stuff. This episode is not about my bowels, anyway. It's about senior year, and this portion is love, romance, and sex. American Pie is a crazy sex fantasy about a bunch of guys who are trying to lose their virginity before they graduate high school. And I was right there with them. I was a late bloomer. I didn't even kiss a girl until the summer before senior year. I didn't actually go on a date until November of my senior year. All right, maybe taking my a girl to my junior prom was technically a date, but I tried to ask her out again after that. I was greeted with, this is where I tell you I just want to be friends, so I guess we'll call that a draw or something. But I had originally thought that I was going to talk about how I was the pathetic, lovesick teenager during my high school years, but I went through my old journals, and I can't say that's exactly accurate. Yeah, through most of freshman and sophomore year, I had this enormous crush on a girl, and I'll talk about that later. Furthermore, there were times when I really wanted a girlfriend. I don't even think I even cared who it was. I just wanted to be going out with someone. Why? Upon analyzing it, at least at first glance, those first couple of years of wanting a girlfriend seemed to be less of a quest for romance and love and more of a quest for acceptance. 
you know, if having a girlfriend would validate my existence or something. Anyway, I skimmed the notebooks that made up my personal junior journal from the summer before my senior year as well as my senior year. And I see a lot of pining for different girls and I see a lot of, well, trying to sort things out. I'm not necessarily going to share anything verbatim because it's honestly really, really embarrassing. And there's a reason these journals have always been private. I mean, that's why you keep a private journal, right? But at the time, I was just writing about what happened. And even though there was so much about that year that was not about girls, much of what I wrote in the journal was about them. You know, who did I like? What was I going out with? How did I feel toward them? I mean, there's this entire there's entire relationship arcs contained in those journals. And I'm sure that if I opened up the MS Word files that contain my journals from the fall of 95 to when I finally stopped keeping a private journal in about 2000, I could piece together some sort of actual story. I had this two-week relationship with a girl. It was my first ever actual relationship in the fall of 95, and if you could call it that. I had no idea what the hell I was doing at all, which is probably why it only lasted two weeks. And I'm sure that her hooking up with someone else didn't help, but my ineptitude was equally to blame. I honestly don't know what's worse from that time, the journals or the poetry either. I wrote this really, really bad, mushy poetry in my creative writing journal and all this angry fuck-you poetry, and sometimes I'm... I'm not even sure who I was writing about or writing to. And flipping through it, I see this kid who was just incredibly confused for the most part because he never had any of this happen. And I think I was really overwhelmed. And I'm not going to get into all, to all the gory details about losing my virginity or anything like that, even though it technically wasn't that gory. But you know what I mean. But I'll say that I'm actually glad that I looked at the journals while writing this and how much I realized my views at certain moments in my life have changed over the years. The girl I was dated after the tragedy of that two-week sort of relationship was someone who I had been friends with in my creative writing class. And she was a sophomore. We were flirting heavily with one another. It was hard not to get the hint, right? So we start hooking up in January and be together all the way into the end of the following August, going out for roughly, it was like a year and a half. For a while afterward, I was bitter and then embarrassed at how just smushy and how in love I was. I don't regret the relationship because I ended up marrying the next girl I met and went out with after I had broken up with that girl. And I think there's a point where you stop thinking of that ex-girlfriend as an ex-girlfriend and you start thinking of her as just an old girlfriend. And what looking at the journal does is give me a look into what I was like in the moment. There's a lot of description of how I felt about her and what we're doing at the moment. It all makes sense. In fact, reading about it in the moment with 20 years hindsight, I can safely say yes that I think I know what I was thinking at the time. Was I a total dumbass? Well, yeah, of course. Everyone's a dumbass at 17. Which brings me to a question I remember trying to answer when I was writing about teenagers, and that was, well, what happens after the credits? Take a look at what was one of the most notable teen romance movies in the 1980s, which is Pretty in Pink. That movie ends with a kiss at the prom. Similarly, Some Kind of Wonderful, which is a hugely underrated movie that'll eventually get its own episode, and so will Pretty in Pink, also ends with a kiss. All the characters there head off to an uncertain future, but do it with the moment of romantic triumph and a fairy tale ending. American Pie ends with the guys all toasting the next step. But do any of these movies really show that next step? Maybe American Pie 2, an American Wedding, um... But the focus of those sequels, it, it, it gets way too focused on the gross-out, 
shit joke, sex joke stuff as opposed to the underlying story in that. And I'll get to that in a few minutes. Say Anything is one of the few movies that gets you a feeling of uncertainty concerning the next step. I mean, Diane and Lloyd, the last scene of that movie, Diane and Lloyd are on a plane. Diane's worried. Lloyd is his usual kind of aloof, confident self. But you can tell they're still both not sure what's going to happen. Nobody really thinks it's going to work, do they? We just described every great success story. Will any of the characters from any of those movies look back at 37 or 38 and try to understand what they were thinking back then? Will they be happy? Well, the guys from American Pie have come to the realization that they didn't need to be in a rush to lose their virginity by the time they graduated high school because it all eventually shakes out and nobody really cares about how much of a super stud you were when you were 17 years old. Except for maybe the people at your high school reunion. <laughs> there are moments during American Reunion where you can kind of see that. But any real intelligence that film could have had was suppressed by either really bad sex and shit jokes courtesy of Sean William Scott Stifler. Not that I expected the fourth American Pie film to be intelligent in any way. I was just hoping that the writers could have gotten something new out of the characters instead of basically recycling some of the same tired, obvious jokes. Yeah, I know, I was probably asking too much. And to its credit, there are some pretty nice moments where the characters involved all have the sense of Things change once you become an adult. The main storyline throughout the film for Jim is that he and Michelle, after having their son, have seen their sex life more or less come to a halt. Complicating things is that they're staying at Jim's old house for their reunion, and the girl next door, whom he used to babysit, is now 18, and she's hot, and she wants Jim to be her first. She wants him to take her virginity. So yeah, we... Go for all of the easier jokes here as opposed to something a little more complex. And furthermore, Alison Hannigan, who is an incredibly funny actress, is horribly underused throughout this movie. I mean, she's horribly underused throughout the whole series, to be completely honest with you. But in this movie especially, I mean, she's got some decent scenes. But shit, Tara Reid seems to get better dialogue and a more mature storyline than Alison Hannigan does. Let that sink in for a minute. Okay, celebrity gossip crap and the real world aspect of Tara Reid, who at one point was one step down from Lindsay Lohan in terms of the Hollywood train wreck example. All of that aside, Kevin and Vicky's storyline, Kevin and Vicky who were the original film, in the, in the original film they actually had one of the more mature storylines. You know, It also had one of the more mature conclusion out of any of them. They're the ones who, uh, Kevin's played by the kid, Thomas Ian Nicholas, I think his name is. He's the kid from the movie Rookie of the Year. Um, and and the 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 conclusion at the end of American Pie is that you know they're they've been dating for a long time, and she's more or less been he's been stuck at third base, and they have sex on prom night. And the next morning, they more or less break up. Vicky decides, you know, I'm going to Cornell. You're going to Michigan, or or uh, or Michigan State or something, and this isn't going to work. I mean, it's just, it's, we have to, we have to kind of let it go. And it's actually the strongest part of, of, of the film, too, because, uh, and I'll get to that in a second, the other strongest part of American Reunion is the interaction that Jason Biggs and Eugene Levy, who plays Jim's dad, have. 
both of these storylines, Kevin and Vicky and, and Jim, and especially and his father, bring up the same feeling about growing up and getting older and being an adult that, you know, that better than anything else in the film does. Kevin is a happily married architect and he works from home and he's got this great relationship with his wife. They're very much in love and you can very much tell that. And they did a pretty good job of illustrating that. He's not cuckolded by any means. Stifler tries to make it seem like Kevin's watching Real Housewives with his wife is all, you're pussy whipped, you're not a real man. But then again, you know, it's Stifler who really never left high school. Kevin, though, never really truly takes the bait. Instead, when he hangs out with Vicky one night, he winds up in bed with her the next morning after having this dream where she's going down on him and she looks up at him and says, tell me when, like in the first film, which is actually a really well-done dream sequence. He freaks out. And it's revealed later on that nothing happened between them and she just simply helped this drunk ass get home and she crashed there. And like I said, it's a mature storyline involving Tara Reid, but it's a mature storyline, and the two characters leave as friends. To be honest, it's fairly realistic of what happens when you run into an old flame, whether or not it be on Facebook or a night in your old in your hometown. Your mind will wander, you'll get nostalgic, you may even think about what might have been, and I guess in some people's cases, if they're incredibly unhappy happy in their lives, they try to hook up again or something. But most of us who have this moment enjoy the memories for what they are, and then they just move on. Besides, I believe in, in fate. And even though I have relationships in my past that didn't go well, or ones that never happened, which is more the case than the ones that did happen and went wrong, I believe that all of that was necessary to get where I am today, which is happily married to somebody I love. If I go back and don't be such a freaking moron with the first girl I dated, or I go away to college with no girlfriend instead of a long-distance relationship, the timeline's altered. I don't meet Amanda. Maybe I do, but under different circumstances. Maybe that's happening on Earth 2. Or Earth 3, I'm a douchebag. And Earth S, I'm a superhero. Whatever. You know, this is what happens when you're a freaking continuity freak. So back to American Pie and American Union. The storyline with Jim's dad... Is goofy at times. It's raunchy in other times because Eugene Levy can't um, be in a film without being goofy. And spoiler alert here, if you have not seen the movie and you actually want to see the movie, which it's not really worth renting anyway, Jim's dad hooks up with Stifler's mom at the end of the film. And But that aside, there's some touching scenes that remind you why the first movie was actually so good. Jim's mom in, in American Union is revealed to have died three years earlier. Jim's dad is just incredibly lonely. So interspersed with an enormous amount of immature gags are these quiet moments between Jim and his dad and Jim, Michelle, and his dad that work because those actors have a great chemistry. And because Jim and Michelle are roughly 31 years old here, uh, the reunion's a 13th reunion because apparently the class couldn't get its shit together for a 10th, which is actually something I'm pretty familiar with. And they're at an age where they're starting to realize that even though they're parents with children, they're all adults. So they can talk to their parents as adults and not as children talking to adults. Moreover, their parents are aging, which we all start to hit at some point where you realize how old your parents actually have gotten over the years. Both of the story, these storylines in this film, Kevin and Vicky, Jim and his dad, 
are looks at how going home again can be very bittersweet. Just as in American Pie, there was a bittersweetness to this consummation of these relationships. Um, Chris Klein and Mina Savari's characters, who hook up again, who reunite again, and fall in love again at the reunion in American Reunion, are the ones who fell in love in American Pie and had the romantic sex scene, whereas Finch fucked Sifterler's mom, and Michelle did the, uh, you know, this one temp in band camp, I stuck a flute in my pussy, and, you know, was all say my name, bitch, when she slept with Jim, and then eventually through two, and then wedding was, you know, then eventually married Jim. And, and Kevin and Vicky had that, had the, not the bitterness, but the, had the true bittersweet thing of, we had sex, and you're my first one, you're my first love, but by the next morning came to realize that this has an ending and it has an ending sooner than a lot of people would have thought because there are a number of people who marry their high school sweethearts and it's all, that's all good and well and good for them. But it takes a real maturity to realize that the relationship you're currently in does have an expiration date and that expiration date might come up sooner than you think. And then revisiting it when you're at your reunion is... And, and again, seeing that sort of you can't go home again, bittersweetness, which nostalgia can bring. Because nostalgia is like a double-edged sword in that regard. That really is a credit to the screenwriters and the director. Unfortunately, it's about 5 to 10% of the film. The rest is just tired dick and fart jokes. So there you go. Thankfully, I'm not done. We have better teen comedies to talk about. It's the last night of your perfect forgettable year In the half-light, you're certain the ending is clear been eating you away It's so good to hear you say Goodbye calendar Hello New Year's Day The words just die The fireworks dim And the passion subsides And the panic was in You try to fly To Icarus wings Melt into nothing when you stop believing You were always so wrong You got lost in the hallways You're always so wrong There's always the sense that teen movies are wish fulfillments. Fairy tales. When I covered Fast Times at Ridgemont High with Todd Levenow back in episode 48, he mentioned how the John Hughes movies had a certain amount of fantasy to them, and it contrasts greatly with a certain amount of realism contained in Fast Times. That film has this real-life aspect to it, and Brad Hamilton has this story arc that's pretty true to life. He's got this idea in his head that when the school year begins, it's going to be the absolute best year ever, so much that he plans to break up with his girlfriend and live the life of a single successful guy. Granted, that success is as a fry cook, and 
which Todd and I both found funny, but hey, he's a single successful guy. Then, of course, it all comes crashing down around him. He loses his job, he loses his girlfriend, and well, a few weeks ago, I was flipping through the channels and I came across the film on one of those random movie channels that I have, you know, like way up in the high hundreds or whatever, and I happened to hit the movie at the exact second after Phoebe Cates got naked. I mean, literally a second after her nude scene ended. So all I saw was the part where she walks in on him and he says, Doesn't anybody fucking knock anymore? This puts the scene in a much different context, if you really think about it. Because most of the time when you hit that scene in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you hit pause. And you spare, you spend so much time staring at Phoebe Cates' tits that you don't really notice how sad that scene actually is. I mean, after losing his girlfriend in his stellar job, all Brad Hamilton has left is sitting on a toilet and masturbating to fantasies about his sister's hot friend while he's wearing a pirate costume. Then he gets caught. Which is funny during the scene as a whole, but makes you feel sorry for him when you really just focus on what's really going on there. I never had this happen, of course, but I do remember hitting a point where I seemed kind of on my own for a while after thinking that I was going to be like, this was going to be the most stellar year of my high school career. I was a bit Brad Hamilton in high school, but I was also a bit Ronald Miller from Can't Buy Me Love, which is another great senior year movie. Ronald's story is a bit extreme and unrealistic, of course. Um, I covered it all the way back. One of my first episodes, I believe, back in like February of, of, of 2013 or so, 2012, 2013. But Ronald Miller's story, of course, if you're unfamiliar with the movie and you haven't listened to the episode, is that he pays a gorgeous cheerleader to go out with him for a month. And that's not something I did, but, but I had this great summer before the year started. And it had to do with the fact that I finally kissed a girl and I was going to be the president of a club and I was looking at applying to some really good colleges. And I feel it usually felt like on top of the world. And of course, it's never as easy as you think it's going to be. Because newfound confidence in yourself never really meshes with the role you've been assigned. Okay, it's not like anyone walks up to you on the first day of junior high or high school and says... You're the brain, you're the athlete, you're the basket case, you're the princess, and you're the criminal. But I grew up in a small town. I went to school with the same people for six years of junior high and high school. And in some cases, I went to school with some of my classmates from all the way from kindergarten through senior year. That's 13 years out of the 17 or 18 I was alive. So at some point, I was unofficially given the title of that person. It's rare that you break out of this, too. And it always seemed, at least to me, that the people who were different or quirky were allowed to be that way on some level, either because they flew under the radar, they had the self-confidence to not really give a shit, or that the socially acceptable people looked upon those people and allowed their quirkiness to happen. Which is why, by the way, that Ronald Miller needs the scheme of buying Cindy Mancini. He needs a ticket into the popular crowd, and she goes along with it, because she has to, because she needs to pay for the ugly-ass suede leather fringed thing that she ruined with bad wine. I mean, good God, the, the fashion of that. Anyway, 
But like I said, he needs a ticket into the popular crowd. She's going to go along with it until she can't take it anymore. You. You. Even Bobby thinks we went out. Great, huh? Ha! All of you thought we were a couple. What a joke. Ronald Miller paid me 1,000 bucks to pretend I liked him. What a deal, huh? $1,000 to go out with him for a month. This guy. Oh, God. He bought me. And he bought all of you. He was sick and tired of being a nobody. Yeah, and he said that all of you guys would worship him if we went out. And I didn't believe that. I was like, no way. And he was right. He was right. Our little plan worked, didn't it, Ronald? The dance. That stupid dance. What a bunch of followers you guys are. I mean, at least I got... At least I got paid. Come on. Yeah, we'll clear everything up tomorrow. <laughs> everything is cool, really. <laughs> oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Retribution for Ronald Miller, as we all know, is swift and it's brutal through the through the last third of that movie. With Brad Hamilton, it's not a scheme that brings him down. It's not a comeuppance. It's overconfidence. It's hubris, even. I mean, he thought he was going to be the golden boy, and he acted that way, not realizing the universe has this way of correcting itself. I'm actually going to bring up my own reunion here because this is where the inspiration for this episode came from. Specifically, it was how dark my thoughts started to get while this thing was being planned. And I'm not trying to have a pity party here or anything, but nostalgia is a hell of a drug. You take it long enough and the bad starts creeping in with the good and it can be a bad trip. My class didn't have a 10-year reunion. If I recall correctly, the person who should have been in charge decided it wasn't worth it. A few people tried to get a reunion together, but eventually each one had to drop out of the planning because of marriage moving and having kids. So I figured, well, we 
think we all figured we'd try a 20. And even this got off the ground late. But I won't get into the logistical details of how it went down, except to say that when things were in full swing about six months or so ago, I realized I wasn't going to be able to attend because it was taking place while I'm on vacation. I was bummed at first, but I got over it because, well, I get to go to Disney World. Plus, I enjoyed reconnecting with people. Then around February, the person in charge of the planning committee started bulldogging people who had said they might attend but hadn't paid up. And by bulldogging, I mean like publicly shaming them on Facebook into paying. While this was going on, I had one of those weird flashbacks that I guess you get every once in a while. I was in the cafeteria coming back from the drink machine and this this person, she was looking right at me and laughing her ass off saying this really crude nickname that one of my, quote, friends had come up with. It made me think of several times during the year where I had to put up with pretty cruel jokes and insults from people I guess the time I thought were my friends, as well as times where I wound up eating lunch alone, either because I didn't have the same lunch period as anyone else or because my, quote, friends had decided to go out to lunch and not include me. And there were other things. I bring up Brad Hamilton because I was president of a community service club in high school, senior high school, called the Anchor Club. And it was the first time I'd ever been in charge of anything like that. I had wanted to be the president really badly, too. I ran for it the previous year and, and got elected, and I was determined to do a great job. The problem is, when you're 17 and you're in a leadership position, even if it's like a high school club, and you've never actually had a great social standing you're not exactly sure if you're doing anything right. I mean, I tried my best. and What can you do at that point? And I definitely had people who I worked well with. But there were people who for some reason just... I don't know. I don't know if they didn't like me or they just didn't like the idea that I was the club president. Or I, I, I'm, I really, to this day do not understand what the motivation was. Not that I've given it much thought. But one of them even went so far as to write an op-ed in the student newspaper all about how I was a raging egomaniac. Oh, sure, she didn't mention me by name, and since I was her newspaper editor, she kept insisting whenever she, you know, when she showed me the article, she's like, oh, no, this, is only, this isn't only you that I'm talking about. Probably so I wouldn't cut the article, but honestly, like, I was never not going to print it. Freedom of the press, yo. But I wasn't stupid, you know? The funniest part of it, though, I remember I remember this. I, I, I have the article because I, I saved all the copies of the student newspaper from senior year uh, because I was, you know, the editor-in-chief. And the funniest part of it to me was where she wrote about how some club presidents, and she was, of course, referring it to me, banged the gavel because we had a gavel to start meetings and banged the gavel so hard and, and it, uh, just how like you know how much of a power trip that was and, and the thing she never realized was that I did that because every time I did she overreacted like this drama queen like oh my god what are you gonna do that so I did it to annoy her so I wasn't being an egomaniac I was just being a dick. But really, an egomaniac on a power trip as the president of a high school community service club. Do the math there. It's quite possibly the most trivial drama you can think of. 
But that's high school. And when that's basically your whole world, it matters so much. I don't think that's why I felt as alone as I did when I hit the spring, and I shouldn't have because I had a girlfriend, but the weird thing about going out with her was that while we were really hot and heavy, she didn't want to publicly acknowledge that we were going out. Something about our friends messing things up, something I think that was her justification. Again, it was high school, and it kind of worked out because I didn't take her to the prom. I took one of my best friends, and... Whereas I haven't talked to the old girlfriend in 20 years, I'm still friends with the best friend. So, on, um, you know, there you go. High school. What's funny is this is stuff I honestly have not thought of in years. And it only came up because of that day on Facebook. You know, the loneliness, the, the egomaniac crap, all of the, the weird drama that I remember going through as a senior. And I'm not making light of PTSD here. But it has to be something like that. I mean, I think we all have something like that from adolescence. All right, well, maybe not people who were wonderful for four straight years and are going to be wonderful and wonderfully ignoring everybody else, by the way, at the reunion. You know, the beautiful people. And and when you really, really think about it, flashbacks to moments where you were embarrassed or put down or beaten up or whatever in high school, it's traumatic But the further away you get from it, the less of a big deal it is. But then there's, like I said, there's that day you get the Facebook message and you're thinking about the reunion committee head laughing and calling you by a really rude name. And, you know, I'm like, am I over it? Am I not? I mean, was this what really happened? And those are questions I've been asking myself. Was this really senior year? I mean, it wasn't the senior year promised by Jostens and everyone else trying to get us to buy memorabilia. All right, I bought a tassel. I still have my class t-shirt. Have you ever actually sat through that assembly as an adult, though? I teach teaching high school English for, for years. I had a senior homeroom and um, in my school. And, and at the beginning of the year, they bring all the seniors down to the auditorium where Jostens is like, you know, here's the cap and gown order and here's all the other stuff you can bring do. And they do something with the sophomores and class rings as well. And it's like the kids laugh at it to a certain extent. And all of us who are adults, especially cynical ones like myself and a couple of my friends laugh at it as well. Cause it's just this, this presentation of this generic, smiling, happy, memory-filled high school that's, like, so incredibly false. Yeah, I I appreciate, trust me, I appreciate the irony of that statement considering I was a high school yearbook advisor for 10 years. But the high school presented in that presentation is one that clearly has, like, the most motivational of Andrew W.K. songs as its anthem or something.
But hey, that's marketing. And marketing to high school seniors is all about togetherness and good times and how you'll have to cherish these memories because things will never be this way again. Which is true. But there's so much about senior year that's about the individual. It's a time when culturally you're expected to focus on yourself more than all of the social group stuff. You decide what you want to do with your life and very often you go to college by yourself. Sure, there are people who wind up following their friends to college, and that's a whole other topic, but I wasn't like that. In fact, I deliberately picked a school that wasn't inhabited with any classmates because I wanted to assert some sort of independence and be my own person more. My success or lack thereof is also another topic for another time, but really, from the moment I hit August, there was a strong feeling of individuality, long-distance relationship aside. Funny enough, looking through my old journals as I kind of approached that, and following kind of my track in my senior year of high school has me thinking about the John Green novel, Paper Towns. The way I figure it, everyone gets a miracle. My miracle was I wound up living across the street from Margot Roth Spiegelman. She was arguably the most gorgeous creature that God had ever created. Margot's life was a series of unbelievably epic adventures. Are you going to spend the rest of high school pining for this girl? As senior year drew to a close, Margo and I were practically strangers. Until this one night. What the? Margo? I need to borrow your car. What? I have nine things I need to do tonight. Can't you just get your boyfriend to do it? Ex-boyfriend. My boyfriend has been cheating on me. Revenge plot begins. Not as weird as it looks. Stop. I can't believe you just did that. Take the picture. Now! <laughs> okay, now that was fun. I can feel my heart beating in my chest. That is the way you should feel your whole life. It's beautiful. It's a paper town. Paper houses and paper people. Everything's uglier up close. Aren't you? You think it's gonna be different in the morning? I really hope so. Margo always loved mysteries. Maybe she loved them so much, she became one. She's gone. When was the last time you saw Margo? You were with her her last night. It has to mean something. There's something in Margo's window. She left little clues, like breadcrumbs. I found something. I think she's sending you a message. Come find me. We're trying so hard. You'll go to the paper towns, and you'll never come back. I think I know where she might be. I'm going with you. She's going. I'm, I'm definitely going. Take a risk. Stop playing it so safe. Maybe that's what she's been trying to tell me the whole time. What can I say? I'm on a mission. Hey! You love her, right? Yeah, I do. Everyone gets a miracle. My miracle is Margot Ross Spiegelman. Now, the movie version, which I just played the trailer for, is not out yet. I don't think it comes out until July. But, um... I was, uh, one night, a few months ago, while I was going down a uh, 
IMDb trailer rabbit hole, which we all do from time to time because trailers, especially trailers for horror movies, by the way, are so much fun to watch. I saw this and I was intrigued by the concept. It seemed like a really good idea for a book. So I grabbed the novel from the library of work and I read it. Paper Towns is, to put it simply, a last great adventure story. The main character, Quentin, has a crush on Margot Roth Spiegelman, who he always refers to using all three of her names as if she's his Jordan Catalano. So anyway, they've been neighbors for years. They run with totally different crowds, though, and, and Margot Roth Spiegelman is popular and pretty and mysterious in a way. Quentin's a straight-A student who hangs out with the other brains. One night, though, she shows up in his room and asks to borrow his car, and what follows is this crazy revenge night where she gets back at a bunch of people who have wronged her, other girls, ex-boyfriends, and Quentin just has the time of his life. Then she disappears. The second third of the book is Quentin and his friends trying to unravel the mystery of where she is, and it's really interesting and engaging, especially since her disappearance brings Quentin and this small group of friends which now includes one of Margot Roth Spiegelman's friends, closer together. The third act of the film is a road trip to a town in New York State, which is where they tracked her down. I've got issues with the book, mainly with the ending and with Margot Roth Spiegelman herself, and I'm sorry, she's a little too manic pixie dream girl at times. But what I enjoyed about it was how it juxtaposes the senior year of the individual versus a group and gives us a last great adventure type of plot, which is essential to a number of teen movies, from American Graffiti to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Because that's what we all want on some level, right? Some sort of capper on our high school experience. One last great time to always remember, even though it's, like I said at the beginning of the episode here, it's really incredibly anticlimactic. Yes, I hung out with friends from time to time, but I spent most of the waning days of high school with my girlfriend, and when I wasn't doing that, I was fighting with one friend or another, and was ready but not ready to head off to college. I did have a Margot Roth Spiegelman, though. She wasn't my neighbor, although I did have a crush on my neighbor at one point. But in my journals, I spent a lot of time pining for this one girl, and putting her on a pedestal, referring to her by two names. I won't tell you what those names were, but I will say it was precisely what you see when you have a Jordan Catalano or a Margot Roth Spiegelman in the case of Paper Towns. You wind up being in love with the idea of this person more than the actual person. And I honestly have no idea who she was beyond what she looked like and that she was a good student because we had a ton of classes together. And there's no climactic moment of my senior year followed by the inevitable rock song about saying goodbye as the credits roll my journal does close with a moment that's a cute ending Um, it happened to occur the night I graduated from high school so I went to my friend's graduation party and I'm hanging out with a friend who is the cousin of my Margaret Roth Spiegelman and we got to talking about her cousin And I jokingly said, you know, in four years, the only words your cousin ever said to me were, fuck you. And this is true on some level. She said it once during gym class when we were playing soccer and I stole the ball away from her. So my friend looks at me and says, I know you asked her out. And I stopped dead in my tracks. Nobody outside my friend John and a couple other guys who probably had forgotten by that point know that I had asked this girl out back when I was a freshman 
And suddenly I'm nervous and I try to change the subject, but I wind up having no choice but to confess my crime. And she says, she asked me, did you know she was dating somebody? And no, I replied, she could have said that when she turned me down. And so my friend fills me in on what I'd missed while I was waiting for her to call me back over the weekend because I called her on a Friday. After I'd asked her out, she told her cousin all about it. She said she knew she was going to turn me down, but she felt bad. And I asked, like I said, I asked her out on a Friday afternoon. She planned to reject me to my face on Monday morning, but I got impatient and called her on Sunday, which forced her hand. And even though we t- I took it well, not talking to her the next four years made her think I held the rejection against her. And I just looked at her cousin at that night and said, wow, I thought she hated me. Which is only half true. I didn't really think either of them. Because um, this will this would obviously get back to you-know-who. Would understand that even though I'd actually gone and dated other girls, this girl who I'd asked out, who I had this crush on, is still on the at that time was still on the same pedestal I placed her when I was in the ninth grade. It was like she had said, yes, I might've had a better reason, a moment where everything I'd imagined was completely shattered, but nothing ever actually happened to make her seem anything but inaccessible. So part of it was me thinking she hated me. And part of it was me just being flat out intimidated by her and not being able to talk to her. So my friend, my other friend, the guy who threw the party was listening the entire time was like completely amazed by this. And, and he, I remember turning to me and saying, wait, you asked her out? And I just was like, yeah. And he just looked at me as like, I have so much more respect for you. And as backhanded as that was, I take it, you know, I took it as a compliment. The next day I went to college for orientation. And then I would go to school in August. One chapter ends And another one begins, right? Everyone tells you when you're wrong So you leave to the tune of a wandering song Someday you'll see before too long that they're gonna miss you when you're gone So you get in a car With all your plans You look down to see A stranger's hands Wherever you go Go with all your heart The way that you planned it at the start The way that you planned Start to go all the way with all your heart, to go all the way with your whole heart, the way that you planned it at the start. So, this is being released on the 20th anniversary of my graduation. I'm pretty sure that people I went to high school with aren't listening, but who knows, maybe they are. And as I mentioned, it was scheduling conflicts that kept me from attending the reunion because otherwise I would have gone. I was certainly excited when things were being planned, but as I've been chatting with some of my few friends from high school with whom I've consistently stayed in touch, 
I realized that I wasn't necessarily bummed that I wasn't attending the reunion. I was more bummed that I wasn't seeing them specifically. Amanda and I were talking about how we weren't attending our respective reunions, and we both had this sense that we weren't going to miss very much. We'd be paying about 75 a head for each reunion. So this is talking about like $300 for a total of two reunions. To say hi to some people, get ignored by others the same way either of us were for four years. Watch people get plastered and act like idiots. Talk to our friends about how we could have just gotten together for somewhere else a lot cheaper and then go home. Pretty unfulfilled. And I realize that sounds bitter. And I'm not bitter. It's just that my natural tendency is to not be able to forget the bad when I'm supposed to be remembering the good. I guess on some level it makes me cynical. I'm not sure. It's annoying. Sometimes it's draining. Especially when it sneaks up on me. Really. Like I said, with the flashback to the girl, the planning committee person who was just laughing her ass off and calling me a really crude nickname, that snuck up on me. And every once in a while, I'll be thinking of something completely ordinary or innocuous, and then my brain will start playing this weird association game, and it eventually leads to a time of memory when I did something or said something that was incredibly embarrassing. And nobody around me at that moment knows, or frequently even cares what that embarrassment was, but I still find myself feeling stupid. Sometimes I'll spend a few seconds beating myself up for it before I'm able to just move on and do whatever it was I was originally doing. It's my own weird neurosis, and I've never been able to shake it. Because I have good memories of high school. In fact, I have quite a number of fond memories And in doing this research for this episode, uh, one of the things that I looked at was this scrapbook I had made for my humanities class during the second semester of of, of senior year. I honestly don't remember what this had to do with the humanities, just that there was a final project and Mrs. Tabor said that we could do a, quote, my life book where we wrote about something and put pictures together, an illustrated autobiography, I guess, a personal yearbook maybe, I'm not really sure. Anyway, being the overachiever I was, even in elective classes, I grabbed every picture I had and made a scrapbook that covered the previous summer and the entirety of my senior year. I called it 10 months, 29 days, 4 hours, 2 minutes, and 41 seconds in the life of Tom Panneries. Because for some reason I always liked that Arrested Development's album's title. And I wrote several short pieces to go along with all of the pictures and memorabilia. After getting it back, I expanded it to include the last few weeks of senior year. Then I did one for each year of college. And I still have them. I'm just sitting on a shelf over here. Anyway, looking through this book was actually a pretty happy experience. And it helped me crawl out of this misery hole that I kind of dug myself into as a result of thinking about all the shit I put up with during my senior year. Then I made a 90s music playlist and I allowed myself some moments of nostalgia without personal commentary. So, I'm better now. One last thing, though, and I think it's a perfect note to go out on. My friend Melissa wrote once, High school is immortal, but even more so are the friends who survive it and grow up with us. And 20 years later, 
I think that rings true more than any memory or point that I have or I've been making. this one together was both fun and tough at the same time which is I think is par for the course when you're dredging up memories best left undisturbed still I'm grateful that you put up with me and that you've been putting up with me for 50 episodes next time I'm going to be looking at the first of two high school reunion flicks from the 1990s Uh, and this one will be the Ted Demi directed Beautiful Girls. It's part of a high school reunion month that I'll be doing on the blog and the podcast. Because I might not be able to go to my reunion, but that doesn't mean I can't have a little fun here, right? Plus, I'll be posting more episodes of 80 Years of DC Comics and getting back into the swing of that. I'm planning on doing at least one Disney World-related episode later later in the summer. And... Beyond that, some comics, some movies, some TV, and you know, just the usual random stuff that you're used to from, from Pop Culture Affidavit. So come back for all of that next month. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demonsicore of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. 
Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. Mm-hmm.